Okay. All right, this is part two of our series on the power of the Rabbanan. In the first of the shiurim last week, uh, we looked at this passage, which is really the core of the entire issue, which is the mandate of Beit Din Hagadol, at source one. We looked at the Sifri on it, and uh, and then we looked at uh, our sugya in, in Yuvamot that got us started, which is the whole issue of the Rabbanan, identifying somebody who is not a mamzer as a mamzer. And that was our problem. And the, the, the problem that we pinpointed with that was because then we're taking somebody who is prohibited from marrying a mamzeret and declaring to be a mamzer and allowing to marry a mamzeret. Shmuel solved that easily by saying he's a super mamzeret. So that really gets around the problem. And it's simply a rabbinic edict, uh, which is obviously very unfortunate for the person involved, but it does not uh, permit anything. But if we were, but that launches us into the sugya of yesh koach b'yad chachamim l'akord davar min Torah. And chachamim have the ability to uproot, as it were, something from the Torah and change status, etc. And um, we then looked at uh, a bunch of different uh, exclusions. Last week, we looked at the exclusions of Migdar Milta and Hefker Beitin Hefker. Hefker Beitin Hefker seemingly read as Beitin has the power uh, of, uh, to usurp financial ownership and to confiscate it or reassign it. And we saw that from the Pasuk in Ezra uh, about the court confiscating people's money who didn't come to the big meeting. Uh, and therefore, they can reassign uh, ownership. Uh, and then we saw the, uh, the issue of Migdar Milta, which is the Rabbanan have the, have the mandate to step in in exigent situations and issue emergency declarations, such as, and the classic example is Eliyahu Kamel setting up a Mizbeach, which is a clear prohibition of Shechut Echutz and Halat Chutz, but it was in order to stem the tide of Baal worship. Um, now, that is, those, those, both of those really demand more Iyun, uh, and we're going to circle back to them next week. Um, we have to remember, though, that when it comes to Hefka, Beitin Hefka, the Yushalmi that we saw last week, put things in a very different light. Hefker Beitin Hefker is viewed by the Bavli as purely a financial issue, even though if we just touch a, a little bit, we're going to discover that it impacts on ritual issues also. But the Yushalmi does that explicitly because it points out that if we declare something to be, let's say, leket, that was the example. So if, uh, if the owner of the field has covered up the leket, so there was a bunch of leket in the field before the poor came, he put a pile of finished uh, uh, wheat or of, uh, of uh, sheaves on top of it uh, so they couldn't access it. We declare it all to be leket, which, by the way, means that we're taking stuff that's not leket and turning it into leket. Now, from our perspective, as Hefka Beitin Hefka, that's fine. We're basically taxing you. We're garnishing your wages and giving them to the poor. That's all fine, except for the problem lurking underneath, pun intended. And that is that uh, that leket is exempt from masrot. So we're taking food that is liable for masrot and declaring it to be exempt. Just as we saw when, let's say, there is a Shemitah year and Beitin decides against the norm, they decide that we need another month in this year because of the season, and they add a month, you basically added a month of food that is not liable for masrot. All right, so uh, that was the, an extension of Hefka Beit and Hefka, and we're going to circle back to that also next week in the 
third and final part of the series about the power of the Rabbanan to redefine um, in the context of ritual law. Uh, but the third part that we did not get to last week was Sheval Taseh. And uh, Sheval Taseh was an answer to one of the challenges. Sheval Taseh literally means sit and don't do. Sheval Taseh is uh, depriving you of the opportunity to fulfill a mitzvah as opposed to kum ase. Kum ase means get up and do it. Meaning, if Beitin tells you to violate the law, Beitin tells you to cut into the baby's skin uh, and do the brit milah, that only works because the Torah told us to do that brit milah on Shabbat. Otherwise, we're violating the law. But sheval taseh, which means the Torah, the Torah commi committed you to do an action, and Beitin is saying in certain, con in certain contexts, we're forbidding you from doing that action. That seems to be lighter. And here is the example. Um, famous example, one of many, which is the Mishnah in the beginning of the fourth parak of Rosh Hashanah, source five. Yom Tov Shal Rosh Hashanah Shachal Yom Shabbat B'Nikdash Tokim Avalob B'Medina. All right, so now the Torah obligates us on the first day of the seventh month to blast the shofar. And... Um, and the Rabbanan came along, according to Bavli. Remember, we talked about this uh, in Masachet Rosh Hashanah, whether it's Doraita or, or the Rabbanan. But according to Bavli, it's Gzerah the Rabbanan, that we do not blow Shofar and Shabbat outside of the context of the Beitin or the Mikdash, the first Mishnah there. And uh, the Gemara first suggests, the Bavli first suggests the position that the Yerushalmi actually takes as a conclusion, which is that the Torah mandated two different modes of shofar. One is truah, and one is zichron truah. And zichron truah, the Yerushalmi says, and the Bavli suggests, is when it falls on Shabbat, you're supposed to just mention a truah and not actually do it. Uh, but the Bavli rejects that, all right? Because then the Bavli says, if that were the case, then even in the Beit HaMikdash, you would have blown on Shabbat, and that's not true. Allah Amar Rava, source six, Midoraita Mishrashari, Rabbanan, who the gods obey. Midoraita, shofar is fine. But the Rabbanan made a decree, Kedaraba, Dama Rabba, it's famous, it's called the Gzeira Daraba, it's a famous piece. Hakochavim mitkat shofar, everyone is liable for the mitzvah of tkat shofar. Man, Hakobukim mitkat shofar, but not everybody knows how to do it. Gzeira Shavit, Lenubi Adobi, Yelechet, Salakil, Modvi Avreno, Arba, Motvishitarbin. So the decree is that perhaps you wake up, suddenly it's the first day of the seventh month, you'll say, oh, I have a shofar in the house, but I don't know the proper way to blow it or the proper uh, blast to make or how long they have to be or what order. So I'm going to carry it over to the expert who will show me what to do, and I'll carry it on Shabbat and Rishut Rabin. Now this, of course, if you think about it, is somewhat of an unlikely gzera because it's just hard to fathom that somebody's going to suddenly wake up Shabbat, you know, on the morning or Shabbat and say, Oh, there's a mitzvah shofar, and I have no idea how to do it. Uh, so you could interpret it as being a last-minute uh, uh, question about one detail about it. But then they <coughs> rock, right? And so therefore, and then the, and then the Gemara adds, "Vainu tamid the lulav, vainu tamid the megillah." And megillah is not our concern because it's the rabbanan. But this is also the reason, of course, in the Bavli, that if first day of Sukkot falls out on Shabbat, we still don't shake lulav, even though that day lulav is the oraita. And the reason is because we're concerned you're going to go to an expert and say, please show me how to shake lulav. Otherwise, you'd shake lulav in your house. Now, one thing we didn't suggest is that why don't we say that bringing the lulav to shul 
is Docha Shabbat because it's a mitzvah say. So there's several answers to that, which is there's nothing that says you have to shake lulav and shul. You can shake it at home. And the second thing is that um, uh, is that uh, um, we don't say an say is Docha Lota say and say, and violating Shabbat is both. And it's an say Shish Bokarate. So there's lots of reasons why, if lulav really were prohibited, we wouldn't have it uh, do it on Shabbat. But the Gemara here says it's not prohibited, but the rabbi said it's prohibited. So essentially, the rabbi said, here's a mitzvah you're obligated to do. We're telling you to sit back and not do it. All right. And so our Gemara mentions this in the following context. If you remember, Rava and Rav Chista were having this discussion. Our whole piece started about this. Uh, and it started, if you recall, with the case of the Truma. Uh, a fellow is not allowed midirabanan to give truma temea to the Kohen, meaning I've got a bunch of truma, and I got a bunch of stuff, and the truma part uh, that I designated, I'm dafka designating from the section that became tamay. So ain tormin mea tamay al hatahor, meaning I've got a hundred, let's say a hundred little uh, piles, uh, pekalach, and they're all tahor, and two in the corner became tamay, and those are the two I give to the Kohen to, be, to take care of the rest. Now, mido araita, that's perfect truma. Midra Banan, you're not allowed to do it. Not nice. Give Sherwin some Tamei Truma, give Abe some Tamei Truma. It's not nice, right? So therefore, the Rabbanan said it's no good. And the question is, what does no good mean? So if you recall, Rachita said, none of it's good, even the part I designated is Tevel again, which if you think about it, is a remarkable statement. That's how our whole discussion started. That means that the Rabbanan have the power to say something that right is Truma, we're declaring Tevel. And that's how this whole thing started. So Rava challenged Rav Chista uh, in his ruling. Um, and he said, how could it be that the, that the Rabbanan uproot something from the Torah? And Rav Chista gave his answers and Rava challenged his answers. And then um, um, Rava was going to challenge Rav Chista with the following. Sorry, Rav Chista was going to challenge Rava with the following and say, you see that the, the, the rabbis have the power to uproot that which is in the Torah. Why are you surprised? I was going to challenge you with Arel, Hazaa, Ismail, Sadim, Tzitzit. This is number seven. We're going to go over all these in a minute. But all of them are cases of Sheval Tase. All of them are cases where the Torah obligates you to do something. And the Rabbanan come and say, because of some uh, ancillary consideration, we're telling you not to fulfill this mitzvah. And therefore, Hashta Deshani Lan Sheval Tase, Lomiakarhu. So Avchista was about to challenge a student and say, look at all these cases where the rabbis have the power to uproot something from the Torah. And I was going to prove it to you from these cases. But once you've already established that Sheval Taseh doesn't really prove the point, well, these are all Sheval Taseh, so I'm not going to use that anymore. And we're going to go to something else. Our main topic today is going to be that something else. What are these examples? So RL. What's an RL? An RL is some, a man who not circumcised. Not circumcised. Not circumcised. Right now, he did and, not take advantage of his Medicare plan. And now, an RL is somebody who um, who midoraita um, the minute that he has uh, that he has his brit milah. He's nimol. That's all, and there is no tumah whatsoever associated with him. However, Chachamim said, "Kol haporesh min haorlah, min hakever." Meaning anybody who has a milah, the minute that their orla is gone, they're considered to mate for seven days. 
Now, for most, for 99% of the population, it doesn't make a difference because uh, what do they care if they're a mate? They're a week old. But let's say there's an adult who's an RL, a convert or not, he's an RL and he has Brit Milah. Here he is uh, three days before Pesach. He, he's all excited and Brit Milah in order to do Korban Pesach. And uh, he shows up and they say, I'm sorry, we understand that you had Brit Milah recently. How recently? Three days ago. Sorry, you can't come into the Mikdash, you're Tamei. And we're depriving him of doing Korban Pesach. Now, by the way, Korban Pesach is much bigger than Shofar, because Korban Pesach involves Karet if you don't do it. And yet we prevent them from doing it because of rabbinic concern, RL. All right, so that, but again, at Sheva al we're telling you, don't do Pesach. What's Ismail? Ismail is, uh, is stolen Brit Milah, the knife used for Brit Milah. What happens according to not Rabbi Eliezer? I'll remind you. The, the main parak of Brit Milah and Shas is in, in Masachat Shabbat, the 19th parak. It's called Rabbi Eliezer de Milah because the opening line is Rabbi Lazar Omer. Rabbi Lazar says that on, in, on Shabbat, you're allowed to carry the knife even in Rashut Abim to get it, bring to the house where the baby is to do Brit Milah. And by the way, you carry it publicly so everybody knows that it's, that it's being done. And Mashat HaSakana, you carry it under you privately. Right when there's a decree against Brit Milah. And Rabbi Lazar says you violate Shabbat in order to bring the knife. Rabbi Kiva disagrees and says his basic rule, which is the halacha, any malacha that could be done before Shabbat is not docha Shabbat. Any malacha that can't be done before Shabbat, like the Brit itself, is docha Shabbat. And so now, this is an example where we don't do Brit Milah. But we don't do Brit Milah even when the carrying is the Rabbanan, even carrying it in an unusual way, which is the Rabbanan. Remember from the beginning of Masachat Shabbat, the only carrying which is considered Doraita is a normal fashion. That's why the 10th parak of Shabbat spends several dapim identifying what normal carrying is carrying on your head, normal carrying is carrying under your arm, normal carrying, etc. Right? And that might be societally specific. And so, therefore, you're not allowed to carry, even carrying the Rabbanan to get that knife to the house, and therefore you're not going to do Brit Milah. Again, Sheval Tassan, by the way, that's the other mitzvah that has karet associated if you don't do it, and yet you don't do it. All right, what's the third one? The third one is Hazaah, right? And now we're staying with Pesach. Uh, Hazaah is Hazaah Mechatat, which is when you are Tmeimate, you have to come to, uh, to the Kohen on the third and seventh day of your Tumah, and have new hazaat mechatat on you, and then go to the mikveh after that on the seventh day, and then you're tahor. Let's say that you became a tmei mate on the eighth of Nisan, and it was Shabbat. It was a Sunday, sorry. It was a Sunday, right, like it was last year. So you would be, you'd go to the uh, coin on Tuesday and get hazaah, the third day, and then you'd go to the coin theoretically on Shabbat, which is the seventh day. And then you'd have Azaah, and then go to the mikvah. And that night you could eat Korban Pesach, and they could include you in the Korban Pesach. But the rabbi said you can't do Azaah on Shabbat. This is a huge blowout this debate between Rebbe Leezer and Rebbe Kiva and Sachab Sachim. But we tell you, don't do Azaah, which is the Rabbanan, even though that's going to keep you from doing Korban Pesach. Now, we have to step back for a minute and think about these three examples. Because these three examples aren't exactly our topic. Meaning, the Rabbanan didn't say, don't do Korban Pesach when you're, when you're still in RL. They didn't say that. They didn't say, don't do Brit Milah if it involves Karen. What they did say is, 
we're prohibiting caring, even caring Durabanan, and, and, and it's not an excuse. There's no legitimate legitimation, even if the purpose is a mitzvah. We're prohibiting hazaan Shabbat. Any Shabbat, any hazaah mechatat. If it happens to get in the way of Korban Pesach, then you, you still hold back and don't do it. You still restrain and follow the Rabbanan's law. And the same thing with, uh, with the RL. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, in the case of, let's say, Shofar and Lulav, is directly aimed at Shofar and Lulav. The rabbis didn't say, don't carry a, a tree in the in Rashid Rabin. They said, don't pick up Lulav on Shabbat because you might carry it. it the, the legislation, it was aimed directly at the mitzvah in the case of Shofar and Lulav. Just want to point out that difference. Um, what's Sadin B'Tzitzit? And this is more similar to that. What's the rule of the Torah if you have a garment which is interwoven of wool and linen? Chatnez, you're not allowed to wear it. What happens from the rule of the Torah if you have a garment that's interwoven wool and linen and the wool is the wool of Tchelet of the Tzitzit? In other you have a linen garment and the strings are wool. The halacha is, we saw it in the first parak, is you wear the tzitzit. Because I say, this is the, the source for asay docha lotase. The asay of tzitzit is docha, is docha the law of shatnes. And that's learned because they're juxtaposed in Parshat Kitetse. And yet the rabbis made a decree, you're not allowed to wear that tzitzit because we're concerned you might wear it at night, where all you'll be doing is violating shatnes and not fulfilling the mitzvah of tzitzit. Right? And that's based on how we, of how we understand what the exemption of nighttime is. Okay. So Sadim Tzitzit really does hit home. Kivseat Seret is one, that would be a sheer by itself. Rashi says, I'm, I don't have any tradition on what it means. There's a long Rashi that, that explains what Kivseat Tzitzit is. It has to do with shechting. The Kivseat Seret, remember, is the one public shlamim. It's the shlamim we brought uh, last week on Shavuot, along with the Shalachem. And if it's shechted, shalolishma, what, what its status is, but not our issue. The, the point is that the rabbis made a decree that the that it's not acceptable, which means that even though it's accepted on the Mizbeach, the meat can't be eaten. So we're preventing the mitzvah by the Kohanim because of rabbinic concern. And shofar uh, lulav. But then Rav Chista says, I was going to nail you, Rav, with all of these ex- examples of rabbinic law uprooting Torah law, but now but once you've told me that Shevat Taseh is not really uprooting, which means my point that I'm trying to drive home, Rav Chista says, that the, tr- that the truma, that midoraita is truma, and the rabbi said, we're not going to consider it truma, that that's legit all the way to the piece itself. We're untrumaizing it. And you would challenge, and, and uh, you're challenging and say, how can the, rab- the rabbis uproot the Torah law? I was going to hit you with all sorts of examples, but I realized these examples are Sheva al-Taseh and don't really prove the point. Because remember where we started. We started with the mamzer. We started with the person who midoraita is a regular Israel. And because of a concern about Yomru, you know, Kidesh Zev and Nasazeb, they were going to call the second the kid from the second marriage. Remember when the husband went away, he thought he was dead, she married another guy, etc. We're going to call the kid from, sorry, from the first husband. If she goes back to him, who's really her husband, we're going to call that kid a mamzer. And that's the Rabbanan. And so Rav Chista is kind of picking on this point of saying, we're, we're, we're redefining him as a mamzer. How can you do that? 
So all the Shevel Taseh didn't help us at all. And the reason it was brought up is because this is what you want to do when you're defining a problem, is you want to entertain all the possible challenges and dismiss them, what we call a straw man argument, because you want to demonstrate these are not challenges to our issue. And so that's what we just did with Sheval Taseh. And now we get to the real nut of what we're going to be doing today, which is the sugya of Afki'inu. So let's take a look at the sugya of Afki'inu because it is a, uh, a phenomenal and, and, and uh, contentious issue. As I said, as I mentioned originally, it's also a contentious issue in practicum today because Afki'inu in one form or another one in one particular form has been at least raised up as a possible solution to the Aguna problem. And there actually is perhaps one Beitin out there that's trying to use it. Um, and very problematic. And of course, it's not a Shior Bahalacha. We're not going to go into that. But just pointing out, it's a real, uh, a real thorny issue. Let's take a look. We start with the Mishnah in Masachet Gitin. So one quick word about Masachet Gitin, even though it's a ways away from us in the Daf. Masachet Gitin is three Masachtot. There's Masachet Gitin, which is essentially the first three prakim, which deals with the essentials of a get. What makes a get? What makes a proper get? The first parak plus is about a unique halacha in the get, about fananichtam, fananichtam, and then the real kishkas of a get. The sixth through the ninth prakim is the practical of Gitin, and all sorts of practical issues of a condition in Gitin, and dot begitting and reshut begitting, and then actually how to write a get the, the actual practicum of it. And punct in the middle, Perak, Dalin, and Hay are two prakim that have nothing to do with Gitin. Nothing to do with them. They are essentially two prakim about tikkun ha'olam, right? And they start with this Mishnah. This is the spinoff place for it because it's about get, but then they're Puzbul and, and ransoming captives. And all sorts of other things come in. And related to Tikkun Olam is Shalotin Oldelet and Midei Darkei Shalom, and all sorts of related things. And so it's an interesting reading of itself. We're going to look at the first, which is the springboard for the whole set of Mishnayot from Gitin. Here we go. Hashaleach Ged Ishto. Guy sends a get with a Sholeach. We know that that's legit. You can send a Sholeach. Matter of fact, if you recall from the beginning of the second paragraph of Kiddushin, the source for Shlichut is Gitin. One of the three major sources for Shlichut is Gitin, and it's really the only explicit one that we have. Okay, a guy sends a get, and then he runs and catches up with Shaliach. Shaliach, or he sends another Shaliach after Shaliach. And he says to the Shaliach, either he says, or his agent says, the get I gave you, I'm canceling. It's canceled. Which means, by the way, if this shaliach says, fine on you, I'm halfway there, and he keeps running, he gives it to the wife and doesn't tell her anything, that get is canceled. And this shaliach is really in hot water, and he's put the wife in hot water, because the wife in a different city will think her husband divorced her, will wait three months, will marry another guy, and she's still married to her husband. That cancellation is valid. That's we got to start with that. The cancellation is valid. Now, let's say instead of catching up with the shaliach, he runs to his wife first, 
Or he sends a shaliach to his wife first. And he tells the shaliach to tell her, or he tells her, to get the tonnet's way, I canceled already. I apologize, I felt terrible, I was angry, I wrote a get, I changed my mind, sweetie, let's go on a honeymoon, get is canceled. Then the get is canceled, or is about tell. It works. But, the minute she gets the get in her hand, we're finished. If he sends the get, and she gets it, and then he runs and says, oh, I was trying to catch up with the guy and everything else. Too late. She's already got in her hand. She's a free woman. Wants to marry her, and he's not a girl. They can do that. Okay. Um, all right. Now, um, the next piece is where things get thorny. Barishona, meaning originally, after all, he would he would be able to mimvatel it in front of a beitin. That's fine. So originally, the 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 the, the practice was because we're assuming here a couple that's already not living in the same city. That's why he's sending a shaliach. He sends a shaliach off. All right, he's in L.A. He sends a shaliach off to Kansas City to bring her a get. She moved to Kansas City. She gets a get. That's, that's the deal. The, the the shaliach is already boarding, and they don't have Wi-Fi on the plane, so he can't reach him. And uh, she's going to meet him at the airport. So what he does is he assembles a bait team here in L.A. and says in front of the bait team, I'm canceling the get, and that is valid. Now, of course, that leaves a very big hole. And the hole is the wife doesn't know about it. He canceled it out of earshot of the shaliach or the wife. Nobody's doing anything criminal here. The shaliach's doing what he thought he's supposed to do. The wife gets a get. She thinks it's finished. She goes and marries another guy. And then suddenly this fellow shows up two years later, and she's cradling a little mom's in her hands. Not a good idea. So what happens? Hitkin Rabban Gamliel Hazaken. Rabban Gamliel Hazaken, remember, is Rabban Gamliel's grandfather. The famous Rabban Gamliel that we have of Yavne, his grandfather, he was in the time of Yishalayim. By the way, he's a favorite of Christians. He's in the New Testament, etc. Rabban Gamliel. Gamliel, right? Gamliel Hazaken, Shiloyu Osinken. He made a decree, you can't do this. What was his decree? Mipnei Tikun Haolam. By the way, this is where it starts. Tikkun haolam. Ne tikkun haolam. In order to make sure society works appropriately, and we understand why, he basically closed a loophole in the law, which was legit but led to potentially disastrous results, which is allowing a man to cancel a get out of earshot of his wife or the shaliach. He said you can't do that anymore. Now, there's one more just to show you how this gets started. It's still with kitten. Right? Originally, they used to put in every possible name that they had. If he was known by a different name, if the city was known by two names. In order to make sure that nobody would play monkey business and say, well, you didn't put all the names in, da-da-da, and therefore it gets no good after the fact, he said, you simply write this guy and any other name he's known by, this girl and any name she's known by, etc. Again, tikkun olam. I've only brought that in so you'd see tikkun olam here is perceived as, presented as uh, enactments that were made in order to close loopholes for the betterment of society, to make sure that uh, family and social and communal interactions are, are achieving what they're supposed to achieve, even in sad circumstances, but that nobody is um, is exploited or or ends up on the short end of the stick. Okay, now we're going to stay with our first case, which is the guy who cancels the get out of earshot of his wife. 
which Rabbi Gamliel Zaken said you may not do. Here's the question. What happens if you do it anyways? Now, again, here we go. The Torah says that if I cancel my get, because I demonstrate that before she gets the get in her hand, I no longer want it. Remember, a get has to be given in, intentionally and willfully by the husband. And that's also at the end of getting of a forced get. What happens if I declare before she gets the get, I no longer want that get to be valid. I have the power to invalidate the get. And if I do it in front of the proper plenum of a beitin or witnesses, machloket and gemara, then, I mean, how many of this beitin has to be, three or two, then it's canceled. So now what happened, when I'm going to I can't make a decree, a decree, I can't do that anymore. What happens if I do it anyways? What are, what's, the impl- what's the implications? Here we go. The tosefta here, and you see it in source nine, so originally they would make a beitin in another place and cancel it. And if the guy goes and violates this decree and cancels it, it actually works. Which means, Rebbe says, my great-grandfather made a takana, but if you don't listen to him and you do and you do the old practice, it's still valid. The Rabbanan only have the power to tell you, that's not nice behavior, please don't do it. But they don't have the power to say, your behavior that the Torah recognizes is valid, we are rendering meaningless. They don't do that. Rebbe's own father, the grandson of the original Metakain, right? Sorry, the great grandson of the original Metakain said, You cannot cancel it. We'll see if I'll tell you. You can't also change the, the terms of the get. All right? But the main thing is, This is the machlok between Rebbe, the great grandson of Gamliel Zakin, and his father, Gamliel, the um, Sorry, Rebbe, the great great grandson of Gamal Zakain, Shem Gamaliel, his father, the great grandson of Gamal Zakain, about what happens if you violate the law of the Rabbanan. But on, in our terms, what it means is what happens if you take an action, de oraita, that renders this woman still your wife? The get is invalid. And the rabbi said, We're disallowing this action, which means we're going to declare her no longer your wife which means if we accept Rameshim Gamaliel's position, that means a woman who is still married to you because your cancellation from the Torah perspective is valid, we're rendering as a free woman. If she marries another guy, it's valid. That's where things open up. Let's take a look. Um, I'm going to come back to source 10 in a minute. You'll see why. If you notice in the Tosefta, Rebbe said the cancellation is valid. Shimon Gamliel said the cancellation is invalid. And therefore, because Shimon Gamliel, Gamliel Zaken said you may not do it, therefore it doesn't work even if you do it. And therefore, this woman is a free woman. She can marry somebody else. Right? Now, the Gemara quotes this Tosefta with an addition, which is a little bit confusing. Tana Rabbanan, here's the Gemara. Bitlo mevutal, tivre Rebbe. Rebbe said if you cancel it, it's canceled. Right, you cannot um, cancel it or add to the to the condition. Right, that's the Tosefta we saw, and then we find another phrase which is not in the Tosefta, which is Sheim Kain Ma Koach Beitin Because if so, then what's the power of the Beitin? Now, if you think about it, that line's a little bit weird. 
Makoch Beitin Yafet means you're essentially attacking the legitimacy or you're harming the legitimacy of the Beitin by saying, but if you ignore it, your actions still count, and his takana sits by the wayside. But that's not usually what makoch beitin yafem means. Let me show you what I mean, because here's where it starts. It starts in a Mishnah Ketubot in a different context. Let's think about for a moment what that phrase means. Makoch beitin yafem. What is, therefore, what is, what is the worth, the legitimacy of the power of the beitin? What is that consideration? We're going to rule a certain way to protect the legitimacy of the Beitin. Now, that can play out in several ways. The first most obvious way is what you're looking at in source 10. And let's read it. Shum hadayanim Remember the law of commerce? That if I overcharge you or undercharge you by anything less than a sixth, it's a valid sale. If it's more than a sixth, then the sale is ona, and it's, it's an invalid sale and it goes back. I get my money back, you get your item back, and we go back to the drawing board and renegotiate. If it's exactly a sixth, then it's called ona. Okay. What happens if the baiting is doing an appraisal of property? Appraisal. A husband, uh, a man died, and uh, and now they're trying to appraise some of his goods to be sold to support the almana, and they make an appraisal which is beyond the sixth. They're off by more than a sixth, right? And a guy comes and buys it. A guy comes to the beitin, buys the thing. So beitin has money. They give it to the woman. Another woman's got money. Mechran batel. If they overshoot or undershoot it by a sixth, the sale is invalid. And beitin summons the guy back and says, "We blew it." Reappraisal, let's do it again. I'm Shimon Gamliel, Im Kain Makoch Beitin Yafet. That's where he said it. He said, if so, then what's the, what's the legitimacy of the Beitin worth? Now, what does he mean by that? What is his concern? Let's think about it. Beitin appraises an item, and based on that appraisal, sells the item in order to get money for the person in need or whatever. And we turn, it turns out that the appraisal was way off. The Chachamim's position is, okay, it's way off. You got to redo it. Shemuel says, no, if you redo it, then, there's the, then you're hurting the legitimacy of the Beitin. How is that? How is that hurting the legitimacy of the Beitin? Anybody? The seller will just complain that it's always going to be off. <laughs> okay, to pick, pick up on what you're saying. Take it a little further. Why is this hurting the legitimacy? So the seller will claim that it's undervalued and throw out that value and get, a get it reappraised. Okay, but how is that hurting the legitimacy of the baiting? That's just hurting that particular sale. Because we would like it to be the case that anything the baiting says is final and that nobody is concerned when the baiting issues a ruling of whatever sort that I better not act on it because I don't know what's going to happen next week. That's part of the undercurrent of Megillat Aster, is that Ahasuer sends out one decree, and then a few months later sends out an almost an opposite decree. And it's almost like, I can't pay attention to any decree he writes, because who knows what's going to be next week. So if Beitin issues a, a ruling, this thing is worth this amount. And then next week, oh, sorry, it was not worth that. Nobody's going to listen to them the next time either. It's going to hurt 
their uh, their legitimacy because it's going to hurt their credibility. That's the way this is perceived. Now, you remember that in the Tosefta, the issue of canceling the get never included that line. The issue of canceling a get simply was, Rebbe says, your cancellation is valid. Great-great-grandfather's decree notwithstanding. Hashem Gamaliel said, no, if you violate great-grandfather's decree, it's invalid. That's it. What happened here? So the suggestion, uh, which I think is kind of suggestion, but I think it's a certainly valid thing, is this line gets thrown into the Gemara as an addition, and it's borrowed from here. Because this is very different. When Beitin appraises an item, and then after the appraisal and the sale, there's a oops, let's go back to the drawing board, that cuts directly to that Beitin's legitimacy. Nobody's ever going to listen to them because they, they don't know what they're doing. And they keep getting new information, changing their minds. Right? It's like you ask the rabbi, is something permitted? Yeah, it's permitted. And the next three weeks later, he tells somebody else it's prohibited. He comes and says, three weeks ago, I said, yeah, but I didn't realize this. After a while, he loses credibility. Not going to say anything. That's not the same as our case, because in our case, it is, you may not do X. And now, if you go ahead and do X anyways, it should have validity, because Minha Torah has validity. The question is, how strong is his Takana? Is his Takana so strong? It'll even block the Torah, the, the right to valid action cancellation and ignore it. So Koch Beitin is, is a strange add-on here. And it really, and uh, and by the way, in some of the gear cell, if you take a look here in this, in, in this version here, in source 14, you don't even have Sheim Kane. You just have like a pad paste on Imkane Ma Koch Beitin Yafeh in this uh, manuscript of the Gemara, which is very awkward in the context. But regardless, that's a side point. Here's a real issue. What we're saying is that Rabbi Shimon Gamaliel's position is if a guy comes and cancels a get outside of earshot of the, the wife or the shaliach, and that's against Rabbi Shimon Gamaliel's position, Shimon Gamaliel says, we ignore your cancellation, which means even though from the Torah, your cancellation is valid, we're going to ignore it. Even though from the Torah she's still married to you, we're because of our takana, we're declaring her a free woman. Which means, by the way, she can be with another man. She can marry him. The marriage is valid. She can have kids. The kids are not mamzerim. That's a huge thing. And that opens the door to this question. How can you have something where me doraita the get is batel? But because of the concern of the power of Beitin, we're going to say this married woman is now not married anymore. She can marry another guy. So we answer it with the following. Now, this is not as simple as it sounds. Anybody who does Kiddushin is doing it based on the approval of or conditional to the sanctions of the rabbis. And Tosfud here famously says, that's why you say, when you give the ring, what do you say? Guys, you've all been there. Hareat. Go ahead, say it. Hareat. Go ahead. The last three words are what we care about. Kedat Moshevi Yisrael. 
Tosfat says, why do you add Kedat Moshev Yisrael? Because you're essentially making your transaction conditional on their approval. So therefore, this guy, now watch what we're doing. This guy, 20 years ago, married, married his wife. He gave her a ring. He said, And therefore, his kedushin are consistently, constantly, and without cease, and redundantly, riding on the constant and continued approval of the Rabbanan. At this point, the Rabbanan said, oh, you did a bad thing. You wrote a get, and then you canceled it out of your shot. You violated our takana. We are going to ignore that, ignore that cancellation. And we're going to say the following. The Rabbanan uprooted your Kedushin. They uprooted your Kedushin, which means, theoretically, you were never married. You understand why this is trying to, this is something to use the sugya in the Aguna problem. We're not saying we're declaring a divorce. We're declaring you annulled. Because we're saying 20 years ago, when you gave her a ring, you made it conditional on our approval. You didn't meet our approval, which means the condition has been met. And now the last 20 years have just been an oops. Nothing sinful, nothing wrong, just an oops. And now she's free to go, which, by the way, has huge implications. Means, could she marry a coin now? Yes. And by the way, notice what, what we remember, Tikkun Olam is to close loopholes, what loopholes this could open. A guy is married to his wife, and um, and he has a good friend who's a Kohen who is single and is Kohen, and this guy's not getting along with his wife at all. He'd like her to be happy, he'd like him to be happy. He'd like to divorce his wife. If he divorces his wife, she can't marry the coins. You know what he does? He writes a get to his wife, he sends it with a shaliach, cancels it out of earshot. Then we have Afkein Rabbanan. This is, don't anybody try this at home. And then... She's not a Grusha anymore. She was never married. She could marry the Kohen. Now, I'm just one crazy little twist on this. So now watch what happens is the end of this piece. Amarle Ravina Dravashi, and we're going to do part one of this issue today because it's going to take us more than the remaining time. The Rabbanan basically uprooted his Kiddushin. Amarle Ravina the Ravashi. Now, where is Ravina and Ravashi? Where are they that this is happening? Meaning, we're having a discussion that seems to be a discussion of the Stamba de Gemara, meaning the later Amoraim, post Amoraim, whatever you want to call them, what we call the Stamaim, who are not named. And they're asking this question about our Sugya. How can you say that a cancellation, which Midoraita is valid, we're ignoring and we're making her a free woman? And suddenly we have a discussion between Ravina and Ravashi in the last generation, second last generation of the name Damoraim. Amarle Ravina Ravashi, Tenach Kaddish Bekaspa. This only makes sense if the original Kedushin were Bekesa. Why? Because remember our rule? Hefker Beitin Hefker, which means the Rabbanan can take any financial transaction and re identify it. You gave it as a Kedushin, we're turning it into a gift, right? You bought this field, we're taking it away from you. Kadish Babiya So Rav Ashi, Ravina, Ravina asks his Rebbe, Rav Ashi says, or his older colleague, how are you going to explain it if the original condition were Rabia? Now, on a simple level, the, the difference is, is obvious. 
a man giving a woman money is not an act of kiddushin. Let's just define this so. It can be paying back a debt. It can be a gift. It can be making her shaliach to bring something to somebody. It can be paying her for work she's done. It can be a lot of things. What makes it kiddushin? What makes the man giving the girl the ring kiddushin, besides the fact that 400 people flew in from out of town and she's wearing a long white dress? What else makes it kiddushin? Statement. His statement. He defines what it is. Not I'm paying off my debt. It's kiddushin. B, on the other hand, is inherently kiddushin. So that seems to be the spirit of the question. Meaning, I understand how the Rabbanan can, excuse me for saying it this way, monkey around and redefine the Kiddusha Kesa. How are you going to redefine in the act of Bia? The answer is we can redefine that too, which is they're going to say that that original Bia Kiddusha you had 20 years ago, now we're just messing around and not Kiddusha. Okay. Now, this last interaction is opens the door, which is going to occupy the first half of, of the third year. But before we get to that, we have to see this interaction between Ravina and Rashi, where it actually comes from. So I want to very, very briefly tell you about one of the leading lights in the world of Limura Talmud in the last uh, 50 years. Uh, and that is somebody who, uh, somebody might know who he is, David, Professor David Weiss Halivni. Um, Halivni was really the closest student to Shaul Liebmanzal, um, and he actually finished uh, the last volume of Tosefta Kachuta after Halivni passed away. He finished it. He finished it. Um, Livni, Halivni's uh, masterwork is a series called Mikorotu Misorot, in which he identifies using serious scholarship. When you look at sugyot in the Gemara, that are what we call parallel sugyot. The same sugya appears in a few different places to identify where it really started, meaning where was the home base of that sugya, and then to see where it got borrowed to. Now, what do I mean by borrowed to? So let's talk about this for a minute because that's part of what we're trying to do in the dive is to understand kind of the mechanics of how it all comes together. What did the Gemara look like in the fifth century? Okay, the answer is it didn't look like anything because there was nothing written, but what, what was the form of the Gemara in the 5th century when Ravina and Ravashi are still alive and teaching in Matamachsia? So it was, as far as we know, it was hundreds of discussions that had taken place over the last couple hundred years in the Batei Midrash. And those discussions were not associated with what we might call a masachat or a sugya. There were discussions. And many of them were associated, shall we say, tangentially or even directly with a sugya, but not in any particular form. When we get to the 6th century, the end of the 5th century and the 6th century, we're talking now about a group of chachamim who are hardly mentioned, if at all, in the Gemara, they what we call the Stamaim, Stama di Gemara, the Rishonim mention this all the time. And, um, and they are the ones who sort of stitch together the different pieces. And ultimately that leads to what by the seventh century is what we might call the Gemara. It's still not written, but the Gemara, the edit, edited version. 
Why am I mentioning that? Because this sugya of Afkeinu that you're looking at here appears a few times in Shas, appears in Yitin, appears in Yivamot in our sugya, appears elsewhere in Yivamot, a piece we're going to see right now, appears in Ketubot, appears five times, Sachakol in the Gemara. Question is, is it home base in all five? That's not going to happen. So question, where is the home base? So Alimi suggests it's here. And I think there's, there's a good reason to argue for that. And it's in a story that we're going to get to in about a week or, or so. All right, and it's a, a discussion about uh, about a Kiddushetana. Kiddushetana, remember, is a girl who's underage and her father's dead and she's being taken advantage of. So the family, Midor Abanan, has this ability to marry off. And the question is, when do her Kiddushin become Doraita? All right, so picking up in the middle of that, we're going to deal with it later in some, um, we're not going to go into the details, but this is the part that's, that's the interesting piece. For us, since when does Rav say that only if they already had Bia after age, then she's fully married? Here's the story. Neresh was the town of her papa. That's important. He'll come up in a minute. Uh, there was a story that happened in Neresh. The Ikdisha Chiktana. A guy gave Kedushin to a little girl. She was nine. No father gave Kedushin to a little girl. Vigadla. And she grew up with him. And it doesn't matter if they had beer or not in the meantime, that would still wouldn't constitute the right as far as we know. And he put her on a, like a sedan chair. It was their wedding. Wedding day. Now they're going to get married. Now they're going to make it formal and official and everything else. Nice big ceremony. And some guy came and grabbed the girl and ran off with her. It's something out of Hollywood, right? Now, this guy ran off with her, and to fill in the blanks, he ran off with her, and then they caught up with him and got the girl back, and the guy evidently had given her some kiddushin, and there were some witnesses. Now, if the girl was fully married, would those kiddushin mean anything? No. Zippo. Zippo. They'd bounce off of her like milk off, off a duck's back. So here we go. If, on the other hand, she's single, the kiddushin would be valid. Watch what happens. Now, this is later Talmidim of Rav, as you'll see from the story. They were present. They did not even require a get from that schnook, that guy who came and grabbed it. They didn't require a get, meaning they considered his condition to be zero, nothing. Okay? Now, we assume the reason is because they were students of Rav, much later students of Rav, and the Rav's position was that even if the guy had not yet had beer with the girl, she was full in the Kudashet, and the other guy's Kiddushin meant nothing. That's what we assume. Rav Papa, who's the homeboy, he is the rabbi of Nersh, says, Nersh means We have a custom in our town that in situations like that, they first have actually chuppah, then she gets into it, which means when she sat on the sedan chair, she had already been, had beer with the guy, and she was fully married to him. And this guy is just abducting another man's wife. That's why they didn't require a get. Okay. Now, Ravashi has a different take. Watch what Ravashi says and see if this doesn't sound familiar. Ravashi Amar, who Hogan? This schnook, the kidnapper, behaved inappropriately. I think we'd all sign on to that statement, but we'd probably use stronger language. Right? That's what I'm calling him a schnook. Who Asasha Hogan? Now, those words are powerful. 
says they he behaved inappropriately, therefore we treat him inappropriately, which means Ravashi is saying, really me do right uh, the Kiddushan of Ali. Because this girl did not yet have relations with the guy. She was with him since she was eight, whatever. But now that she's of age, she has not yet had Kiddushan with him. Her Kiddushan Darabonan. This guy grabs her right when she reaches majority. And the Tosa talks about whether she actually agreed to the Kiddushan. And he says, really, the Kiddushan of the second guy should be valid. And if we're going to rest her, W-R-E-S-T, rest her away from the second guy, they should need to get. But we're going to behave inappropriately, which means we're going to declare her to be a single, uh, to be totally married right. to the first guy and the second Kiddushan being valid. We are the Afki'inu Rabban on the Kiddushan. You see that line? This is now Ravashi's the author of it. The Rabbanan took away his Kiddushan. This schnook behaved like a terrible guy. We're declaring your Kiddushan null and void. In other words, Kiddushan to right are valid. And you understand how this hits on our problem? This is the core point of our problem. Here are Kiddushan that the Torah recognizes as valid, and we're declaring them to be so invalid that we don't even need, you don't, we're not even going to demand that you get, that you give a get, because you didn't do anything. And therefore, this girl can go resume her nice wedding with her husband who's been with her for a couple of years, and everything's fine. And, you know, therapists will make money on it. No, now, doesn't, what? Doesn't she have the, the power to say, I don't want this? Yeah, sure. That's why I mentioned Tosfot suggests, and the other Bishon suggests that she, a little Stockholm Syndrome here or something like that, that she agreed to the Kiddushin, because otherwise you're right, it would be nothing. It would be nothing. Right? Yeah, so, this was the plot for uh, Runaway Bride. As we saw that movie. Okay, so Amr so, Ravina the Ravashi. Ravashi made this statement, Shaloka Hogan. Ravina turns to him, Thomas doesn't sound familiar, the that would be fine if the Shnook gave her Kessa. Because remember, it's Ravashi making the statement, suddenly we get the context. Ravashi is the one who said, the Rabbana took away his Kiddushan. Ravina turns to him and says, Rabbi, that would work if his Kiddushan were Kesef. What would you do if, if he had been, we don't know what he did, if he was Makadish or Rabia, and she was willing. And his answer is, So the suggestion, I think it's a 100% valid suggestion, is that this is the original Sugiyavafkinu? Because look who's talking. Ravashi is the one talking and saying Afkinu. The Rabbanan took away his Kiddushin. And Ravina turns to Ravashi on the spot and said, That would work if the guy was Makadish or Bekesa. What about Pabia? And by the way, notice he does not say anything here about um, call the Makadish, Adat Rabbanan Makadish. Then when you're Makadish, you're doing it based on the Rabbanon's will. You can't say that here because this guy is a schnook. He's not, he's not giving our condition based on the Rabbanon's will. He's a kidnapper. All right, so we're going to see a Tosfot in a minute that will speak to this. So he suggests this is the original sugya of Afkinu right here. And you see Ravashi Ravina are present in this discussion. It then gets lifted and put into the sugya of Gitin when the guy cancels the get out of earshot, which is not exactly the same case. Because in this case, the schnook is behaving like a schnook at the hour of Kedushin. And we're just saying, your Kedushin are meaningless because you're a schnook. No, what's, cur what's curious is that, that the Rabbanon here don't say anything about the Avera of Lotignov. Well, Lotignov wouldn't, wouldn't apply here. Lotignov is... Why not? He kidnapped her. He took her away. Again, it's only if she agreed to the Kedushin. And we don't know what the, what the status of her. And by the way, Lotignov only applies as far as kidnapping goes if you then sell them into slavery. Vit Amir Bo you're right that there's also other issues here. 
but we're trying to cut just to the core transactional problem of the Kiddushin and whether they're sufficient enough to at least require a get. Clearly, this girl doesn't want to be with the second guy because when all the dust settled, she wants to be with a real husband. And the question is just, do we have to sever that temporary relationship? And the answer was no. We all agree that second relationship is nothing. The question is why? So Papa's answer was, because I happen to live in Nersh and I know that in Nersh, she already was fully married to the first guy before she had this big public uh, sitting in the chair thing. And so therefore, there's no reason to have it. Ravashi turns around and says, I don't even need that because we have the power to take away his Kedushin. That's the point. We have the power to take away Kedushin. That's a wild statement. The Torah says if a man gives a girl money she's and, and she agrees and there's witnesses, the Kedushin are valid. Another man sleeping with her is guilty of adultery and is executed. And if the Rabbanon are going to come along and say, we're taking away your Kedushin because you're a jerk. Not a little more than that, but you're, you be, your Kedushin were done at, in a schnooky way. Right? Very powerful. And then Ravina turns to him and said, that can only work with Kesev. Did the Rabbanon have such a power over Bia? They said, yes, they do. Now, notice what Tosfot here says. Tosfot here, the re, Rabbi Yitzchak Dampier, asked the question, which I hinted to before. In the Sugiah and Gittin that we saw, the main Sugiah of we recognize the main Sugiah, which is with the canceling the get out of earshot. The Gemara used the phrase, called the Mekadesh Adat and Rabbanan Mekadesh. When you do Kiddushin, it's based on an explicit approval of the Rabbanan or explicit acceptance on your part that the Rabbanon approve of your Kiddushin. And therefore, the Rabbanon have the right to uproot it, which means the way we understand it is not that Rabbanon have the power to step in and change your Kiddushin. You basically handed that power to them by saying, Kedat Moshe Yisrael. And if they decide we don't like your Kiddushin anymore, they can take it away because you voluntarily gave that to them. Notice that in this sugya, the little girl that doesn't say that, and can't say that, like we said, look at Tosfa. Masafka Luri, the Rima, Rabbi Yitzchak was un, was unsure. Is the reason for Afkeinu because when you do Kiddushin, it's based on their approval? Talking about coming home at the end of this year. Or is it because Chacham have the power to uproot something from the Torah? Meaning, and there's a wildly different approaches. The first approach is to say, in the limited area of Kiddushin, since you explicitly state, I want my Kiddushin to be Kedat Moshe Yisrael, therefore the Rabbanon are sitting and say, well, we approve, we approve, we don't approve anymore, finished. But that's because you told us that you're basing it on our approval. Or he said, maybe that's not the case. Maybe the Rabbanon could step in without you saying anything and say, your Kiddushin are no good. We're uprooting your condition. You're married to her. Me doraita, me doraita. If you're a coin, she can eat truma. Me doraita, you can be made for her nadarim. Me doraita, you're chayev and sherek sutanona. Me doraita, if she sleeps with another man, she's chayev mita. You could turn her into a sota, all that stuff. And we're declaring her not married to you because we have that power. And what's the reason proof that that may be the position? Our sugi doesn't mention anything about called the Mekadesh, Adata Rabbanan Mekadesh. He said, therefore, that may not be the case. Now, I'm just going to whet your appetite with, I mentioned that Afkina shows up in five places, twice in Yivamot, the Arsugya and the little girl, once in Tubot, which we're going to look at at the beginning of next week, um, once in Gittin, we already saw, and this famous case in Baba Batra. 
All right, we're going to end with this just to go around. We're going to come back to this in the beginning of next week and look at a, a range of two different approaches that we've shown him here, which are just going to blow you away. And we're going to spend a lot of time in say from its vote and in the Rambam and different versions of the Rambam next week, because this sugya, and by the way, parts of this sugya actually belong to the opening um, shear, the opening dive we'll have on Kiddushin when we get there. But in the meantime, hopefully, you know, by then we'll forget some of this and we'll have a chance to review. The sugya in the middle of a pair of Cheskatavatim, one of the most luscious parkim we have in Shas, third parak of Batra, discusses the issue of a forced transaction. I put your gun to your head and say, sign the contract. Right? And at the conclusion of the sugya, conclusion is that a, an, a coerced contract is valid. You then go to the Beit and issue a modah, which is a protest against it, to, to subvert it, but the, val- the current contract is valid. Well, don't worry, we'll move away from this. Even if you identify a particular field, the Amar Memar, this is the one, imagine this. You put a gun to a woman's head and say, accept my Kiddushin or else, and she accepts it, the Kiddushin are valid. Right? This sure one touches back to what you said before about the little girl, right? Now, don't, don't not yet, because you're going to see. Mar Baravashi Amar. Who's Mar Baravashi? Baravashi's son, right? He said, are you kidding? Kiddushin certainly aren't no good in this case. Why? Not because of her will, because the Sugya earlier deals with that. Every case of onus involves a little bit of will, because I'm interested in accepting Kiddushin because I prefer that to being have my head blown off. It's an interesting notion of coercion. He said, you know why the Kiddushin are no good? Because this guy's a jerk. He's more than a schnook. He's a jerk. Because he put a gun to her head and said, except Kiddushin. And therefore, we treat him like a jerk. Notice there's no Mekadesh Adata. There's no Kedat Moshe Yisrael here. The Rabbanan, take your Kiddushin away because you're a jerk. You put a gun to a girl's head and said, marry me. She, under coercion, accepted it. We're saying that that act is meaningless, even though me don't write that should be meaningful. Now watch this. this is, and the rest of this we know. But now who's talking? Ravina asks Ravashi, that should only work if it was Bekesef, etc. Wait a second. Who spoke up earlier in the sugya who explained why we take the Kedushin away? Mm-hmm. Right there? Ravashi's son. Ravashi's son. So imagine this. Ravashi's son says something, and now Ravina is going to ask Ravashi about it. This piece here is borrowed from our story in Yvonne, with the little girl. I'm going to get you get your little taste of how the editing process happens in Yvonne. This sugya is borrowed from there and put into here, but bottom line, it's the same thing. We're going to come back to the sugya in Babatra and see the sugya in Tubot, mainly because of an important Rashi here. Um, and we're going to see a number we shown him next week uh, in, in following this all through. Um, just before ending, I want to just mention that uh, Nigel's, Nigel, yeah, there you are. Nigel's mom's yard site is when? Tonight. Tonight. It started, right. started last night. Started last night. So we're, this, is, this is the yard site. How many years? 17. 17 years. And her, I put her name on the source sheet. Thank uh, you. Lisa was kind enough to re-up it 
to re-upload uh, it so that we had it uh, properly. And uh, Naftali, I think I sent you a new copy. Leah, but Yosef, may your memory always be a blessing. And Indeed. you always have warm and good memories from, uh, from your mom. I do, and thank you.